0: What are you waiting for? Join Choice Privileges and start earning points toward your next stay. Find a stay for any you when you book direct at choicehotels.com, where travels come true. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? happy Saturday. Uh, As we promised last week, today we are concluding the story of Catherine de Medici, including her connection to the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre.
1: Look forward to Catherine coming up again on our new episodes of the show this week as well. And if you are interested in hearing the other episodes that are referenced in today's show, we'll have a link to all the Medici episodes from both this super series that these two episodes were part of and from later hosts. We'll have that in the show notes of today's episode.
0: Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com.
2: Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Katie Lambert. And I'm Sarah Dowdy. And when we left Catherine de' Medici in our previous podcast, she was a grieving widow. Her husband had just been killed in a jousting accident.
3: A terrible jousting accident, which I'm going to take the opportunity to relive one more time. He receives a lance in the eye through the brain, and it takes him 10 agonizing days to die. So that's where we left off, and it's where we're (laughs) going to pick
2: up again. I can see why you want to relive that, Sarah. Uh, She's left as regent for her sickly, weak-minded 15-year-old son, Francis II, uh, who ended up married to Mary, Queen of Scots, which connects our Medici series to our Tudor Stewart series. Which, that's the key. That's why this is a super series, which we've been so excited about. Exactly.
3: Um, but... Catherine replaces her cheery personal symbol of a rainbow with that of a broken lance. She starts wearing exclusively black mourning attire, usually with a, a white ruff to set it all off. For the rest of her life. For the rest of her life. And and she gets to work, and she effectively rules France through three successive sons who are king until she dies just shy of 70 years old.
2: But don't think there wasn't any trouble, because there definitely was. The first son, Francis, didn't live very long at all. He died at 16, and he was succeeded by his 10-year-old brother, who became Charles the Ninth. And Catherine took this opportunity to seize full control of the regency, using her very excellent scheming skills to remain in control of her kid amid these jostling factions in France.
3: Yeah, and she promotes him to majority at age 13, which is a year earlier than normal, but she she wanted... a a real king of France because these factions were so contentious at this time. And she takes them on a grand progress of the country. And it's a big deal. It's 28 months of traveling, moving between chateaux and tents and taking barges and horses and having all these elaborate festivals and banquets. And Catherine is kind of an elaborate lady anyways. We learned in Leonie Frida's book, um, Catherine de' Medici, Renaissance Queen of France, that she keeps bears in her retinue. And you know how much Katie and I love bears. but (laughs) A woman after own heart. They, these are kind of sad bears though. They have pierced noses and they're they're chained to her leader, but they follow her around. I mean, how
2: crazy is that? She's also got a monkey, a parrot, and an entire household of dwarves who wear brocades and fur and have their own footmen and tutors which they all hang out with her constantly. But the point of
3: this tour is is not just to to show off and show off how magnificent the crown is, but to have the king meet and mingle with his people and to keep the nobles entertained, keep them away from their, their country houses where they could, uh, I don't know, cook up plans against the monarchy and um, just try to bring the country back together. And she's hoping that everyone will ultimately rally around the king and rally together for France. And this is something the country really needs at the time.
2: Right, because when Henry the died, he'd had the personal loyalty of all of their nobles, and once he was gone, the country is split again by feuding noble factions. Each of them wants control of this young king.
3: Yeah, they're loyal to the the crown still, but they don't have that personal loyalty that they had to the uh, to Charles and Francis before him to to their father. So the principal nobles we're going to keep an eye on here are the Guise family, and they are the ultra-Catholics. And then there's the Bourbon family, who are princes of the blood, which makes them uh, the second family in France after the, the royal family itself. And the Bourbons are Protestant, so just remember those two sides throughout this whole thing.
2: And the issues between these two groups of nobles are also representative of religious issues in the country as a whole. So we're going to give you a little background on that to make it easier to understand.
3: Yeah, the Reformation, of course, got its start in 1517, two years before Catherine was even born, um, when Luther posted his 95 Theses. And then the zealous Protestant John Calvin is largely responsible for spreading the new religion in France. Um, And just... To get a scale of how quickly things happen here, by the 1550s, we have the first French Reformed churches. So this takes off really fast. Less than 40 years
2: for the whole thing. And Catherine's husband, Henry II, who, as we learned in our previous podcast, was obsessed with his foreign wars was a little bit too distracted to deal adequately with these religious fractures. And he also underestimated them and their power. And then, you know, right after he made his foreign peace, he died with a lance in his eye. So that cut that short anyways. Definitely. So we're left
3: with these weak child kings and Catherine trying to patch everything up, patch up these feuding nobles and a country split by religious differences. And she's trying to protect her children's throne. She's trying to defend her own religion. She's a Catholic, of course, and deal with the factions. And she can't please everyone. Nobody can juggle all of that.
2: And contrary to Catherine's later reputation as this crazed ultra-Catholic who's intent on spilling Protestant blood, we'd like to do a little myth-busting here because she really strived for moderation whenever she could. And she granted freedom of conscience and limited access to worship, which was a big big deal it's basically separating sedition from heresy and no one is happy still the catholics think she's capitulating or maybe she'll even become a protestant horror of horrors and the huguenots think that it's still not enough
3: yeah so it's weird though because this piece that she tries to establish the freedom of conscience and the limited access to worship is what we end up with decades later after nine civil wars of religion um you end up with the same thing, it's crazy.
2: But that's not to say that her reputation for Florentine tactics, which by we mean murdering people, and interest in the occult wasn't deserved, because even though she was a devout Catholic, she relied heavily on Medici astrologers, magic, and her own dream visions, another podcast theme. She had consultations with Nostradamus, but her main astrologers were the Florentine Ruggieri brothers, who were magicians, necromancers, and men who were known for being very skilled in the black arts. And just this weird magic
3: mirror story about Catherine. Supposedly, shortly after her husband died, she um, she consults one of the Ruggieri brothers, um, wants to have him foretell her son's futures. And in this mirror he pulls out, she sees her son's faces circling by, and Ruggieri tells her that each Circle they make will stand for how many years they'll rule the kingdom. She sees Francis go by once. Her second son, Charles the Ninth, goes by fourteen times. And then her third son, who is later Henry the Third, goes by fifteen times. And the final face she sees is Henry, Prince of Navarre. So it's really spooky and kind of a bad, uh, a bad omen for Catherine.
2: She also had a guy in her life, Metro René, who mixed up potions for her and supposedly poison gloves and poison rouge. And although it's likely that Catherine had people taken out, you know, had her own little hit list, she probably didn't poison any fellow queens with poison gloves. But this is the kind of stuff that earns her her nickname, the Black Queen, and uh, that massacre we're about to discuss. Yeah,
1: that's a really big part of it.
3: could just being me. Amy Winehouse, Back to Black, directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R, under 17, not a Minute Without Parent, only in theaters May 17th.
1: Say goodbye to complicated, expensive, and uncertain shipping, and say hello to an advantage with USPS Ground Advantage shipping from the United States Postal Service.
0: Okay.
3: We're going to set the stage for the massacre. While there are eventually nine wars of religion in France, at the time of the massacre, which is in 1572, we've only had three so far. And the wars have polished off the main Bourbon Protestant leaders, leaving two young princes as figureheads. And that's the Prince de Condé and Henry of Navarre, who we've already mentioned. Um, And Catherine has just arranged a peacemaking marriage. Kind of think, uh, the Yorks and the Lancasters, sort of like that, between Henry of Navarre and her daughter Margaret, who's known as Margot. And this marriage is going to unite the Valois family, the royal family, with the Bourbons. So that's uniting the senior and the junior branches of the royal line. And it's also going to unite the Catholics and the Protestants, because of course, Margot is a Catholic, Henry of Navarre is a Protestant. So it's this great um, symbol of peace and goodwill, and thousands of people are going to come into Paris, nobles, regular people of both religions,
2: to see the nuptials. And we have another important player in this setup. Since the Bourbon Huguenot leaders are dead, we have a guy named Admiral Gaspar II Coligny at the head of our movement. He had just returned to court about a year earlier and had begun currying favor with the king. And his uncle had been a great trusted advisor to Henry II. So the Gas- Lamb's Yes. So Gaspard's idea is that maybe he can take on a similar role with Charles IX, who as a young man is you know, starting to get ready to take on more responsibility, take over some of it from his mom and upstage his younger brother's glamorous military reputation.
3: So Gaspard has a plan and he's hoping that it will bring him personally closer to the king, but he's also hoping that it'll give the Huguenots more recognition, more rights, more respect in France. And the plan is to take French Catholics and French Huguenots and together fight the Spanish in the Netherlands. And the wedding ceremonies that are going on in Paris offer the perfect opportunity for Gaspard to discuss this plan with Charles
2: and to try to get his approval. But unfortunately for him, Coligny is very unpopular with the other members of the court. The very Catholic Guise family doesn't want war with Spain, and they hate Coligny because they consider him responsible for a murder in their family, the murder of Francois de Guise 10 years earlier. And Catherine doesn't want war with Spain either. She thinks it could be disastrous, and she doesn't like Coligny's influence on her son.
3: So this isn't just a religious issue. It's a, it's a mixture of personal vendettas and political problems. But going into this, we have two things happening, this big marriage between Margot and Henry and the arrival of Coligny to attend the wedding and discuss the plans for the war against Spain.
2: So Catherine had long banned the Guises from enacting their revenge on Coligny for this murder. He may not even have been involved, by the way. His his name got roped into it, and yeah, he probably didn't have much to do with it. But then she lifts this ban, so he's basically back on a possible hit list, and approves the plan to assassinate him the day after the wedding ceremonies end. So we have a brief
3: interlude here of the happy peacemaking wedding on August 18th, 1572. Margot and Henry of Navarre marry outside of Notre Dame. And then she has a mass inside with her brother by proxy, because of course, Henry as a Protestant cannot take part in a mass. And she wears an ermine trimmed crown and a coat with a 30 foot train. We just thought we'd throw in a few fashion fashion details details. (laughs) before things get really bloody here. And the festivities go on for days, you know, kind of like the wedding we talked about earlier of Henry II and Catherine, um,
2: just grand festivities, days and days of them. And Coligny himself isn't a big partier, so he's not really taking part in a lot of this celebration. And he doesn't even really want to be there, in fact. His wife's just had a baby, but he's hanging around so that he can talk to the king about this Spanish expedition he'd like to get going. And he's becoming increasingly angry because Charles keeps putting him off and putting him off. And eventually he warns him that they might soon be discussing civil war rather than foreign war if he Ooh. doesn't get his meeting. <laughs> and
3: he also hears the plot might be hashing. I mean – you know, word is going to spread in these times, but it doesn't bother him too much. He's going to stick around in Paris because he really wants to talk to Charles. So Friday, August 22nd, the celebrations end, and Coligny is out on a walk when the Guise assassin strikes, and it's a shot from a window above the street. But right at that moment, Coligny bends down to adjust his shoe, so the shot misses him. It just strikes his arm, breaks it, and almost shoots off his finger. But he's not killed.
2: (laughs) There's a lesson there, maybe, to always tie your shoe. I'm not sure. (laughs) But the Huguenots, of course, are enraged by this incident. And Charles, who didn't know about it, promises that he'll find the parties involved, not realizing, of course, that his mother is behind it. And remarkably, Coligny stays in town instead of leaving, which... I would have done because he trusts Charles and trusts that he'll figure this out and set things right. He believes him. Well, and fleeing would have been a huge insult to the king once he asked him to stay.
3: And by this point too, things are starting to get kind of scary in Paris. The Huguenots are obviously furious that their leader has had this assassination attempt. And the Catholic Parisians are starting to get kind of angry too. I think they're tired of The
2: Huguenots being around, this party has gone on too long by this point. But Catherine's involvement in this failed assassination attempt cannot be found out, so she meets with nobles secretly to determine what to do next, and their decision is to kill all of the Huguenot nobles and captains who are still in Paris, which makes you wonder how they came to such a radical decision.
3: And this is where... Things get a little bit dicey historically. Supposedly, the royalists, you know, Catherine and her nobles, had heard that the Huguenots were about to attack them. So, in order to avoid a coup, they decide, okay, well, we'll attack first. But later historians have said that it's probably unlikely there was a major Protestant coup in the works at this time. Although, I I, watched an interesting video from historian Barbara Diefendorf at Boston University, and she said it didn't really matter if the Protestants were actually going to stage a coup or not. Just the fact that Catherine and the other nobles thought it might happen was enough to, to warrant their strike in their eyes, at least. And this is their, I mean, think about it. You have all of the powerful Huguenots in your own capital. Some of them are staying in your own palace, the Louvre. And In a few days, they're all going to go home, back to their own palaces, maybe raise their own armies if they're planning a coup.
2: It's the time to strike. This is reminiscent of the Pazzi conspiracy. Very reminiscent. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so they've made their decision, but they need the king's approval to go through with it. And they break to him that actually they were behind the plot the whole time and convince him that the Huguenots are about to try to pull this coup. And he's basically bullied into giving his assent to execute a select list of people to kill.
3: And he supposedly says, kill them all, kill them all. Or maybe one of the guises says that later as a direct quote of the king. But um, we should emphasize that his assent is to kill the people on the list. And it's just the
1: people on the it's list. It's not
3: consent to the massacre that ends up happening.
1: And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit
0: QuickBooks. Focus Features presents Back to Black.
1: I want people to hear my voice and just forget their
0: troubles. Experience the music and her story.
1: Know this. I ain't no spy,
3: Girl.
0: Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen.
3: I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th.
2: The killings are planned for the early morning on St. Bartholomew's Day, August 25th, and they're to be carried out by the king's royal bodyguards and Guise troops. At the same time, militiamen would be guarding the city's gates, and barges would block the Seine, so they're shutting off the city. And the signal would be the 3 a.m. bell of the Palais de Justice. But the massacre starts a minute earlier when a bell rings out from a different church, and the first one to be killed is Coligny
3: one of the first major, major leaders. And he's very disdainful of his Guise guard assassin. He says, I should at least be killed by a gentleman and not by this boar. And then he's run through with the sword, thrown out the window alive, and later beheaded. And at the Louvre, there's all-out slaughter going on. Henry of Navarre had woken up early, he couldn't sleep, decides to play a little game of tennis with his friends while he waits for Charles to wake up. And on the way to the tennis courts, he and his friends are stopped by the king's men and separated. His companions are probably all taken away and and killed immediately. But Navarre is locked up with his cousin, the Prince of Condé, for safety. These two are going to be spared. They're not going to be killed in this massacre of Protestants.
2: The Huguenots staying in the palace are dragged from their beds and have their throats slit. Some try to hide, some try to run in the courtyard, but they're shot down by archers or pushed toward the line of Swiss guards. And a sad note about Catherine Daughter's Margot, she's now, of course, the wife of a Huguenot, and she's in the middle of all of it.
3: Yeah, her sister had tried to warn her something was going on. Didn't give her details of the plot, but had begged her mother to let Margot stay with them for the night. And Catherine wouldn't allow it because she figured if her if her daughter didn't return to the Huguenot apartments, uh, the Protestants might realize something was up. So yeah, Margot is in the middle of all this. She's actually in bed when. One of her husband's men comes running in covered in blood and clings to her for dear life, being pursued, you know, by an assassin right behind him. The guy actually spares his life, and Margot personally petitions for a couple more of her husband's men. But by 5 a.m., nearly all of the major French Protestants have been killed. So the list has been killed by 5 a.m., by 5
2: a.m. But the killing doesn't stop with the list. The rest of the populace gets involved. Lots of French Protestants have brought their families into town for the wedding, and they can't escape. Their homes are raided, their children are killed, their bodies are thrown in the river. And personal issues that have absolutely nothing to do with religion were also settled in the chaos because... If everyone's getting killed, who's going to know if you kill your creditor or your enemy or your wife?
3: Yeah, it's a good time to to take care of things. Nobody will notice. Um, So Charles, obviously, was not intending for this level of bloodshed to happen. And he asks the people of Paris to please stop. And they don't. It goes on for three days. And then it spreads to the provinces where it goes on until October. And Katie and I were talking about what sort of message would that be? You have a, a guy
2: rides out and says, they're killing everyone in Paris. You should do that where you are. We're not sure how that works. The final tally is a bit up in the air. A Catholic apologist puts it at only 2,000. A Huguenot puts it at 70,000. But it's likely that there were at least 3,000 people killed in Paris alone. And a few senior Huguenots
3: do manage to escape. A few people had decided that they might want to move their quarters across the river, you know, just in case trouble broke out between all the Catholics and all the Huguenots that were in Paris at once. And a few of them ended up being able to escape, and uh, they were the seeds for new
2: rebellion. So the aftermath is that the Valois cannot get their story straight about what happened. Charles is telling contradictory tales. To the Protestants, he says that it was a popular uprising organized by the Guise. So just a personal vendetta, y'all. And then to the Catholics, he says it was something that he specifically ordered to prevent a conspiracy against the crown. But of course, some Catholics like Philip II in Spain and the
3: Pope in Rome see it initially as, oh, great, France has finally started a religious war, and they're really happy. Philip even does a little jig, supposedly, which seems very unlike him. <laughs> um, but they realize pretty quickly that, no, it wasn't a religious war. It was politically motivated
2: and uh, stopped being so congratulatory. And many Protestants had been sticking to the line that they were loyal to the king, thinking, that he just had bad advisors, that it wasn't him. But now they decide that they can't be loyal to the man who accepts responsibility for the massacre, understandably. And the Huguenots throw off Calvin's views toward royal allegiance, which makes rebellion justifiable now. So we have this pamphlet battle that
3: begins too. And this is probably most of the engravings you've seen, maybe Catherine standing there in black over piles of dead babies. This is from this time period. And Charles is depicted as a maniacal king who laughed when he watched his people killed from his window. Or maybe he's this emotionally disturbed man who is manipulated by his foreign mother, who's the black queen, and who is not just foreign, she's Italian, which makes it doubly bad.
2: So ultimately, we just have these caricatures of these people instead of who they really were, and Catherine de' Medici has retained this reputation throughout much of history. Charles was haunted by the massacre, actually, and chronically ill. He died soon afterward, and his brother became Henry III.
3: And Catherine, always involved in her children's lives, continues to promote her son's throne. This is her favorite son, too, by the way, and mainly her role. For him, since he is a full grown man, is to rein him in from his kind of dangerous inclinations sometimes. But she dies in 1589, and eight months later, he's murdered by a deranged friar. And he dies without children, so the crown goes to a junior branch of the family.
2: The Bourbons and his cousin, Henry of Navarre, Henry IV. He was the groom at the pre-massacre wedding festivities, who's married to Margot Valois. But Margot and Henry, who were never interested in each other in the first place, to be honest, ultimately annul their marriage, which allows Henry to make a new match. And with this new wife, he goes on to found the bourbon line of kings that ends nearly 200 years later with Louis XVI and the French Revolution. And who is his
1: wife? Marie de' Medici, of course. Thank you
3: For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.
0: Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love.